Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. As I remind you most of the time, it's important that you read along because the Holy Spirit wants to speak to you from the Word directly. Uh, and uh, I believe that as you read along, He will. The topic this morning, Jesus recruits several disciples, promising they will see angels descending and ascending upon him as depicted in the vision of Jacob's ladder. The title of our message, Recruits and Ladders. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for our text. It's just always a joy, Lord, to get these slices of your life and to, uh, as much as possible, insert ourselves into the uh, episode, Lord, and, and, and try and get to know you better, get a handle on things. Lord, each of us have come in here at a certain place in our walk with you, uh, with certain burdens and blessings. We trust that you can deal with all of them, Lord, each one of us, that you would have our hearts to touch and to, to mend. And Lord, there might be and probably are a few people that don't know you. We pray that your spirit would convict them and convince them, Lord, that you are their savior, the forgiver of their sins, and that you offer them eternal life. Thank you, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. Everything you need. That's the promise made by a parachurch organization that offers to help you plant a church. Their website says... With our church planting program, you'll get personalized coaching, practical training, relevant resources, and tested strategies that work in the community in which you plant. You'll be able to implement proven systems that will help increase the long-term success of your church plant. They identify three stages, pre-launch, launch, and post-launch. During pre-launch, and I quote, we will outline partnership details, that's double speak for how much they're going to charge, discuss your salary, and explain what church planting grants you will receive. We will teach you how to raise funds and recruit your launch team. We can even help with the creative aspect of your church plant, such as naming, branding, and logo development. Welcome to the weird and wacky world of 21st century church planting. Answering this question, how much money should it cost to plant a new church, the estimate from several experts is between $300,000 and half a million dollars to be raised in pre-launch before you start your church. When we came here in 1985, there was $4,000 in the bank adjusting for inflation. That would have been a whopping $10,000 in today's money. It's no wonder we were 18 years at the YMCA. We launched too soon. As for me and my house, we would not attend a church planted using those methods. John the Baptist pointed his disciples to Jesus, indicating to them that he was everything they needed. True, Jesus wasn't planting the church, not at first. His initial mission was no less monumental. He offered Israel the kingdom of God on earth. Jesus had one non-material resource, John told us in verse 33 that God the Holy Spirit descended upon Jesus from heaven and remained upon him. We are baptized with the Holy Spirit at our conversion into the body of Jesus on earth. We have the promise of the gift of the Holy Spirit in abundance if we ask our Father for him. 
I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, Jesus says to you, come and see. And number two, you say to everyone else, come and see. Let's take a look at Jesus choosing some guys in verses 35 through 42. John the Baptist and Jesus had extremely long pre-launches, if you want to use the modern terminology. Nothing much is recorded beyond a few miraculous events surrounding their births and then in Jesus' youth. Suddenly, about 30 years later, in 29 AD or so, John launched his baptism for repentance ministry. He put on a camel's hair garment and a leather belt. He went out into the wilderness. He fed on locusts dipped in wild honey. Uh, I don't know if that was his branding or uh, what his logo looked like. Imagine designing a logo for John the Baptist. That'd be awesome. By word of mouth, Jews from surrounding villages and towns heard about it. They flocked to John, repented, and were water baptized to prepare for the arrival of the Messiah who would baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. John's only resource was God, the Holy Spirit. And it created quite a stir during that time. Jesus' ministry launch was a little more dramatic. John shouted, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Holy Spirit lighted upon Jesus in the form of a dove and remained on him. It was all very supernaturally natural. Maybe I can illustrate what I'm getting at. Don't bother watching Jesus Christ Superstar. If you've never seen that, uh, you don't need to. And if you have seen that, repent. <laughs> the title is enough to inform you it isn't going to be biblical. Judas is portrayed as a confused supporter of Jesus, an anti-hero with the Lord's best interests in mind. He turns him over to the government, hoping to force Jesus to use his power and establish the kingdom. And so Jesus is, or Jesus is kind of the hero in Jesus Christ Superstar. And by the way, let me just say this right now. Any representation of Judas in a heroic light is just non-biblical nonsense. And if you're watching something and it starts to tend in that direction, uh, it's, a, it's, it's 20 red flags, all right? So just be careful. At one point, Judas sings, Now why'd you choose such a backward time in such a strange land? If you'd come today, you could have reached the whole nation. Israel in 4 BC had no mass communication. Mass communication would have overshadowed the supernatural. The wonder of Jesus and John the Baptist before him is that they could make names for themselves at all. How did they do what they did? It was all through the power of the Holy Spirit, that same spirit that's available to you and I in that same abundance. And so verse 35, again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. Multitudes were coming out to be baptized. There would be a lot of logistics involved. People would need assistance, have questions. Some of those John baptized stayed and served as his disciples. They picked up the slack so John could baptize more people. And so there was no plan that we know of, only people serving. John didn't have a, a plan to, uh, to baptize. He just went out into the wilderness and started baptizing people. And by word of mouth, it spread. And you can imagine, I mean, imagine a huge crowd of people, uh, you know, during a time like that. 
Uh, there would be lines and line behavior, old people who would need help. What about this? What about that? Where, you know, and so some of the people stayed as, as his disciples, as his servants. It was all very natural. Verse 36, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. God sent John to identify to Israel their Messiah, who must first be slaughtered as a substitutionary sacrifice. I, we don't know how much the people understood about Jesus, but when you say that somebody is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, if you're a Jew, there's a thought that, well, we slaughter lambs. We slit their throats. They bleed and die in our place. And so that was what, was, uh, what John was announcing. It's not a very positive message. It's, and yet John was on message even though uh, it probably wasn't what people wanted to hear, it was what they needed to hear. He didn't look at any demographic studies or poll people to hear what they wanted in a preacher. He wasn't concerned that there were no facilities or services of any kind where he'd be baptizing. Imagine how ridiculous if John had applied for a grant for his ministry. Uh, who's next? John. Okay, comes in, camel hair, leather belt, chomping on uh, some locusts, dipping it into a cup of honey. What's your plan? I'm going to go down to the public waterway, the Jordan, and just start baptizing people. How are you going to get them to come? I don't know. They're just going to come. And what are you baptizing for? They need to repent because the Messiah is on. Can we take a minute and just confer among ourselves? This guy's off his meds. I'm serious. I mean, think about it in a practical situation. No mass communication. Channel 30 Action News wasn't out there, even in sarcasm. I mean, all this spread by word of mouth. Hey, great. What, what, you can come out and be baptized repenting of your sin. You're a Jew. You've never been baptized because Jews don't baptize. Oh, they, if you're a proselyte to Judaism, then you need to be baptized, by, but also always by yourself. And so what John was doing was just crazy. And yet it was successful. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Now I want to think that John was excited to see these two disciples follow. These disciples had heard his message and they received it. They understood it to a certain extent. He said, I'm nobody. I'm going to point out who the Messiah is. Follow him. And they said, okay, here we go. We're on our way. The apostle John would write in his third letter, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And so I think John the Baptist had that same heart. Verse 38, then Jesus turned and seeing them following said to them, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? It's common in movies to have a follow on foot scene. Often the person being followed will turn and confront the follower. What do you seek are the first recorded words of Jesus in this gospel. Humans are seekers because God has put eternity in our hearts. Nothing and no one other than Jesus can satisfy us. God wired us that way. What we seek is to fill the void only God can fill. And so it's, it's a profound question. What do you seek because we are all seeking something. Actually, we're seeking someone, but we don't know it. Because God made us that way. And there's a scripture in Acts that talks about how he 
distributed people all over the world so that they would seek him and find him. And so we are seekers. Their response seems off base. We're stalking you and we want to know where you live. He said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was saying, uh, staying rather, and remained with him that day. Now it was about the 10th hour. Jesus showed them hospitality, and they talked until 4 p.m. I just had a thought when I was thinking about that. I wonder who washed the feet on that occasion. You know, the Jews were always washing feet when they went inside. Uh, we're not told. But uh, at any way, he talked with them until about 4 p.m., he started his ministry, the Lord started his ministry by serving people his father brought to him. These two guys came to him. And Jesus said, come with me and we'll start a dialogue. Unless you are a hermit, which I'm guessing you're not since you're here, serve people and you will discover your gifts and the works God has planned for you. Don't plan to serve potential people in the future. So many people want to establish a ministry for potential people in the future. Minister to the people that God has given you right now. Serve those who seek the Lord and those who are outside of his kingdom. It's really that simple. Why do we hesitate? Well, because some, lots of reasons. There's never you know, just one reason. But one reason is that there's no safety net. It's like you know, God is always stretching you. He's always... Uh, you know, bringing you farther into your walk with him. He tells you to do something and your, your first inclination, my first inclination is I'm not qualified. And yet what we're learning this morning and everywhere really in the scriptures is that if you have the Holy Spirit, super qualified. John wasn't qualified. He didn't go to baptism school. He, you know, had no ordination uh, he had no organization behind him. He just had the Holy Spirit since he was a baby in his mother's womb. He didn't do anything for 30 years. And then he started his ministry by the prompting of the Lord. And it was a ridiculous ministry on paper. All he did was obey and start ministering to people. And you see what happened. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. It's almost certain that the other guy was John, the writer of this gospel. He refuses to draw attention to himself. Verse 41, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Families are weird. You know what I mean because it's almost Thanksgiving. Conan O'Brien tweeted, if you want to avoid seeing your family this Thanksgiving, be sure to book a flight on American or Southwest. It's funny because families are weird. Nonetheless, your family is typically your first ministry, especially if you were saved later in life. The people who know you best, in a sense, will see the transformation within you thanks to the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's as if Jesus puts you in front of them to say, come and see what I've done for Gene. It's what I will do for you. Verse 42, and he brought him to Jesus. Now, when Jesus looked at him and he said, you are Simon, the son of Jonah, you shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. We tend to follow the interpretive path that leads to why Cephas, who we know as Peter, was called a stone. 
If you were Jewish, your first instinct would be to recall men and women in the scriptures that had their names changed for the better by God. Abram was renamed Abraham. Sarai was renamed Sarah. Jacob was renamed Israel. A name change announces that God who has begun his good work in you will complete what he has started. Jesus says to us, come and see that I have a new name for you. In the Revelation, Jesus says, to him who overcomes, I will give a white stone and on the stone a new name written which no one knows except him who receives it. Now, he who overcomes is synonymous with being a Christian. It's not that you're a special Christian or you pass certain tests. You're just a Christian. And he says, you will have a new name. I don't mind my name. I kind of like my name. My parents lived in a simpler era when no one was named Apple or Blanket. <laughs> the, you know, so Gene's okay. I mean, there's, you know, um, I think I would have preferred Tony, but my eldest brother was already Tony, but... Uh, so that's fine. But I am excited to hear Jesus call me by my new name. There's a special name, an endearing name, a wonderful name that he has for me. And it announces more than just I'll have a new name. It, it puts me on alert that he who began a good work in me will perform it just like he did for Abraham and just like he did for Sarah and just like he did for Israel. Nonbeliever, Jesus is calling you to come and see him on the cross dying in your place for your sin as the last lamb. Believer, keep coming. Don't veer off. Don't stop short. Come and see the good works God has prepared for you. In the remaining verses, you're to say to everyone, come and see. Lauren Faulkner was my co-worker in 1979. God used him to bring me to salvation and point me in the right direction. By far, most conversions involve the witness of a family member, a friend, a co-worker, or a stranger. Someone we would call a nobody, a whosoever. That's me, that's you. We are somebody's nobody, if that makes sense. So verse 43, the following day Jesus wanted to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. When he was born, Jesus added a sinless human nature to his deity. Jesus is fully God and fully human in a union we cannot understand. He isn't sometimes God and sometimes a man. He is fully human and fully God in a union we can't understand. His unique God-man status confuses us. One scholar writes, Jesus knew people's thoughts. He was able to distinguish true believers from non-believers. He knew from the beginning Judas would betray him. And in fact, he knew all things. On the other hand, he increased in wisdom and did not know the day or hour of his second coming. We need to adopt a perspective going forward. How are we going to deal with Jesus dealing with people as the God-man? So I want to survey a few verses that can give us some insight. You don't need to turn there. I'm just going to read them to you. John 5, 19, the son can do nothing of himself, Jesus said, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Jesus never acted independently. He was fully God and fully man, but he acted on earth as a man submitted to God the Father in the power of the Holy Spirit. John 14, 1 says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will also do, 
and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. If Jesus did his works as God, exercising his deity, we would never be able to do works like he did, right? So Jesus said, you're, you're going to do, I did works, you're going to do many more works just like I did. So he must have done them as a human being, in dependence upon God, and not as God, because then that would exclude us. And then John 14, 16, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. Jesus was promising to send the gift of the Holy Spirit to empower his followers in the same manner the Holy Spirit empowered him. Jesus did his works as a man empowered by the Holy Spirit for our example. He set aside the independent use of his deity. If he did his works employing his deity, how could we ever hope to do them as mere humans? We couldn't. And so Jesus found Philip means he was led to find Philip acting in concert with his father. Likewise, he wanted to go to Galilee because his father was prompting him to go. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Jesus will pronounce judgment on the people of Bethsaida because they reject the witness of his miracles and do not repent of their sins. These three men represent God's grace in salvation. He called them out from a wicked city. He would have saved any Bethsaidian who repented and received him. And so in wrath, God always remembers mercy. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Moses told Israel to look for the coming of a great prophet. The other prophets of the Old Testament said he would be the one upon whom the Holy Spirit remained. I'm skipping a lot of things here because we studied all of this last week. John keeps repeating certain things for emphasis, but we looked all about this last week. We're trying to draw this week from what the Lord has for us. And so Philip shared the Lord with Nathaniel, but he, you notice, was wrong in some of the details. Although Jesus grew up in Nazareth, he was born in Bethlehem. And Joseph was not Jesus' biological father. You and I get it wrong sometimes when sharing Jesus with others. God is limitlessly gracious. He covers for us time and again. Share what you know. Uh, don't make mistakes on purpose. But if you say something that's not quite right, God's going to cover for you. Uh, because we all, none of us have a perfect knowledge of, of the Lord's ways and, and all. Uh, and so just don't be afraid to hold back. Whatever you know, you know. It's like the guy in the Gospels who says, all I know is that I was blind a few minutes ago and now I can see. So what do you want me to say? And, and if you're saved, there's something you have to say. It might not be much you think, but share it and see. Verse 46, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Riverdale? Philip said to him, That's a, that was an easy one. Philip said to him, come and see. Nazareth was an obscure, off-the-beaten trail village. It's not once mentioned in the Jewish scriptures. Surely someone as famous and powerful as the Messiah would not be associated with humble beginnings and background. Jesus invited Andrew and John, come and see. Philip invited Nathaniel, come and see. In both cases, there was a responsibility to act on what they'd been told. Come and see. 
Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Jesus made a statement that showed he knew Nathanael's inner thoughts. Jesus was omniscient, but we're understanding him acting as a human, walking in dependence upon his father in the spirit's power. And so we could say here that Jesus was exercising what will later be labeled the word of knowledge, the supernatural gift of the word of knowledge. It is the Holy Spirit giving you knowledge you cannot otherwise acquire. Some, if you have this gift, all of a sudden you know something about someone or some situation that, that you could not know otherwise. Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Messianic Jews studied and read under the shade of fig trees because the tree was the symbol of the nation of Israel and because of God's promise to bless Israel in the future. Zechariah 3.10 says, In that day, says the Lord of hosts, everyone will invite his neighbor under his vine and under his fig tree. Jesus knew Nathanael's heart and his habits. He was omniscient, but this is the Holy Spirit giving him that knowledge. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. Jesus' exercise of the word of knowledge brought glory to God. We don't want to get off track in the study of the gifts of the Spirit, but uh, they're not, as Warren Wiersbe says, toys to play with. They are for ministering to other people. And so as Jesus came to Nathaniel, uh, the Lord gave him these things to say to him through the word of knowledge, and it blew Nathaniel's mind, and it gave glory to God. Now, Nathaniel's reaction, though, it can seem extreme because someone could have told Jesus that Nathaniel had the reputation of being without deceit, or your Bible may say guile. And it was a good guess that he read under the fig trees because everybody did. But the following two verses put the entire scene into its total perspective. Verse 50, Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Deceit or guile is the word for Jacob. It's the Hebrew word for Jacob. Jesus knew the very portion of scripture Nathanael was reading under the tree. It's from Genesis Jacob dreamed, and behold, a ladder was set up on the earth, and its top reached to heaven. And there the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Jesus quoted the passage, even giving the correct order of the words ascending and descending. You put it all together, and you see why Nathaniel's mind was blown. Jesus knew his heart and his character, and he knew, had seen him sitting under a fig tree, and he, in his uh, you know, talk with him, let Philip or Nathaniel know, I, I, I even know what you were reading. And beyond that, he said, and it's a type of something that's going to be magnificent. Jesus was claiming that the latter represented him. It was a prophecy of things to come. So, oh yeah, this is the Messiah. Jesus used the term son of man of himself more than 80 times in scripture. It underscores his identifying with us as human beings. He is the son of man 
in that he is our example of a man upon whom the Holy Spirit remains. And so um, I've been finding this time through John quite an emphasis on the Holy Spirit. It's, it's interesting and wonderful how God uh, points you in a certain direction. But what we learned last week and what we're seeing in practice this week is that God has promised believers, every believer, no matter your maturity, no matter what, he's pro if you're a believer and you've been baptized spiritually into the body of Christ, God promises you the gift of God the Holy Spirit to empower you. And he says, I'm a great father, way better than any human father, and so all you have to do is ask me and believe and you have the Holy Spirit. And, and here we see, you know, these people are larger than life to us, obviously, John and Jesus, but essentially they had nothing but the Holy Spirit. Nothing but, and Jesus, John doesn't get into it in this gospel, the, uh, the apostle John, but immediately after Jesus was baptized, he was driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit and tempted while fasting for 40 days and 40 nights by the devil. And so, um, you know, these guys, um, these guys really did everything in the power and energy of God, the Holy Spirit, depending upon God. And that's a great example. Are we ever going to be perfect in doing that? No. Be, you know, Jesus was the only one who was perfect. He was. John wasn't. Nobody else after him was. But we strive to that. And not strive in the sense that we have to... Uh, you know, do something or work uh, our way into it, but we just have to believe. The Holy Spirit is a promise. Promises are made by a promiser, you know, and, and who wants to give you something, and he's a gift, which is given to you, and you just ask for him. As far as church planting, we would say this. You're the church, and God has planted you in your life and its circumstances. Tell others to come and see Jesus, and watch what happens. Serve them. Minister to them. Tell them what you know. Point them in a direction. My friend, Lauren Faulkner, he, you know, saw what was going on in my life, led me to Christ, took me to a Calvary chapel. And that set my life on a, a course that is still going on today. He's just an average everyday guy who six months earlier wasn't even a Christian. Got saved and then started ministering. And so don't, don't worry about potential people. I, mean, I don't want to be weird, but we can't worry about empty seats, right? I mean, our goal isn't to fill every seat. We, we don't even, we're not thinking about that. Minister to the people that are there, that God has brought you. Uh, from these humble beginnings in the Gospel of John, the church goes on today as the greatest force in the universe.